Welcome to the Theology Research News podcast. Theology Research News provides updates from K. Leuven's Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies to a worldwide academic audience. It features interviews with faculty members, discussions with visiting scholars, and updates about our publications, conferences, and other events. Please visit TRN at theologyresearchnews.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. My name is Sebastian Salaske, and I'm coming to you from Münster, Germany. I work at the Institute of Catholic Theology in our neighboring city of Osnabrück. And I will talk to you about liberating limits. It is September 2020. Around the globe, governments' responses to the COVID-19 pandemic have brought about heavy restrictions on personal freedom and civil liberties. Rigid border enforcement before and during the pandemic is limiting people's freedom of movement and particularly their right to seek asylum and live in safety. With this in mind, it may seem odd or even cynical to suggest that limits could be liberating. The title of this presentation should make more sense, though, against a different yet not at all unrelated backdrop. The fantasies of limitless economic growth and the unbounded intensity with which present societies, especially those so-called industrialized and increasingly those so-called emerging societies, keep exploiting and destroying Earth's systems, including the global climate. These fantasies are putting the lives of today's most vulnerable members of humankind and future generations in peril. Against this background, protest movements like Fridays for Future call for radical change, and some scholars dare to spell out what such a change would need to entail. Limitations, restrictions and reductions instead of unlimited growth. Human civilization is embedded in and deeply dependent on the network of planet Earth's systems like atmosphere, geosphere or biosphere. The ability of this network to carry and sustain humanity is, however, restricted by planetary boundaries, four of which have already been exceeded through human activities. The global climate is one of them. While the permanently damaging transgressions of other boundaries is looming. Consequently, acknowledging these planetary boundaries, as well as agreeing upon and adhering to limitations to human activities, seems to be the obvious reaction to the threat. However, such limitations do not sound appealing to many citizens, business executives and political decision makers, especially in industrialized societies. They tend to trigger connotations of abstinence, asceticism, or loss of convenience and freedom of choice. It is therefore not surprising that the mainstream of current economic, political, and public debate around sustainable development and climate policy focus on the idea of addressing climate change and other environmental challenges by means of ecologically friendly technologies and green growth. 
Green growth is supposed to be a form of economic growth that is successfully decoupled from any harmful impacts on the environment through efficiency gains. This idea promises to bring human activities back to and keep them within the safe operating space of the planetary boundaries without arduous changes to societies, economic systems and lifestyles. It is becoming increasingly apparent though that such an approach is unrealistic because efficiency gains tend to fall victim to an overcompensation through so-called rebound effects. I therefore consider it important to bring back a discussion about limits to our affluent lifestyles. As a Catholic theologian, I also believe that Christians at large and theologians in particular should actively engage in that discussion. Two scholarly approaches that dare to question, criticize and dismantle the narrative of green growth are those of German political scientist Doris Fuchs and Italian Swiss philosopher Antonietta Di Giulio, as well as of German economist Nico Pech. Both approaches bring a discussion about limits back to the agenda and make a strong case for the necessity of absolute reductions in material and energy use, respectively in industrial production and consumption. In this presentation, I will outline these two approaches and pair them with themes from the works of liberation theologians Ignacio Eacuria and Ion Sobrino, as well as Pope Francis. Thereby, I'm attempting to make two points, that social sciences as well as theological reasoning can explain how economic reductions and limitations do not necessarily reduce quality of life, but rather have the potential to generate liberating effects. And secondly, that the idea of reductions and adhering to limits resonates better with Catholic theology and social ethics than a pro-growth economic agenda, and that Christian churches and theologians should become allies to scholarly approaches and civil society movements that try to promote and practice a more frugal life within limits. Nico Pech's concept of a post-growth economy acknowledges the existence of limits to growth, which according to him are not only seen in production systems, but also in the hedonic overstimulation of people. According to him, sustainable development can only be understood as a program for economic reduction. Therefore, technologically generated efficiency needs to be complemented with sufficiency. Pech suggests some of the following sufficiency measures. The last set, the last mentioned set of measures is particularly important. The combination of these different non-market activities, which Pech calls creative subsistence, can replace industrially produced output and thus ensure that a reduction in industrial capacity would neither entail a loss of consumption functions nor 
a loss of material prosperity. Moreover, he considers the necessary reductions and adherence to natural limits to be a liberation from excess. There is no doubt that such reductions would be liberating for the earth as well as for the present victims and losers of the dominant economic systems and for future generations. What Pech has in mind, however, is the liberation also for the present members of affluent industrial societies who have to reduce their consumption and mobility levels. This is by no means the rhetoric of lifestyle guides, but rather an assessment based on valid economical and psychological reasoning. For example, relying on creative subsistence can liberate from the time demanding excess of consumption options, as well as from the economic dependency on depletable resources like crude oil or rare earths on volatile market developments and on a growing financial indebtedness. When freed from these dependencies, lifestyle, lifestyles become more autonomous, robust and resilient. This may, well be this may well be accompanied by a liberation from fear of loss and an increasingly insecure future. Moreover, creative subsistence facilitates experiences of self-efficacy and helps to reintegrate the social into the economic. I quote, if simple manual work regains its status then this will open up the possibility of integrating those who are ostracized due to a lack of money, education or communicative abilities. Despite these and other liberating effects, a respective public or political will or democratic majorities in favor of a post-growth economy seem out of sight let alone any sort of national or even global action plan. However, in the light of a continued and unrestrained exceedance of planetary boundaries and depletion of extractive resources, Nikopech is convinced that reduction and sufficiency will eventually become a reality, as he says, by design or by disaster. He does not suggest, though, to resignedly or even cynically wait for such a disaster to come. A post-growth economy can start in niches and be practiced as a form of self-empowerment by those who are ready to act out a lifestyle of creative subsistence and sufficiency. I quote, The transition town urban gardening and repair movements are examples of pioneering work that at least foresees some of what the rest of society will experience in the future. Politicians and citizens who are not quite ready yet, but want to support and promote a transition towards D and post-growth can at least support those movements and activists through donations, advocacy, policymaking, etc. Waiting inactively for a disaster to come would ignore 
the already existing potential of an exemplary anticipation of sustainable lifestyles. These exemplary anticipations could become the blueprints of a post-growth economy when its time has come. Doris Fuchs and Antonietta Di Giulio start from similar observations with regards to the limits to growth as Nico Pech. While he conceptualizes his approach in a broader perspective of economics, this, I quote, moves the role that consumption plays in enabling individuals to live a good life and in overstepping ecological and social limits to the center of attention. Furthermore, Fuchs and Di Giulio emphasize questions of societal and political discourse and deliberation rather than economic strategies. Their concept of sustainable consumption corridors can thus complement Peck's approach. It is a fairly recent concept, which, however, draws on insights from works and debates around basic needs and capabilities. It integrates ideas of good life, justice and planetary boundaries and proposes a joint societal discourse that should lead to an agreement on sustainable consumption corridors. These corridors would be defined by both a minimum and a maximum threshold. A minimum level of natural and so social resources that every individual is entitled to as a basis for a good life and a maximum level to every individual individual's use of resources beyond which the integrity of the Earth's systems is put at risk and access to sufficient resources for others, both in the present and in the future, is jeopardized. Different corridors could be defined for specific goods and services or bundles of the same. Every corridor would set a limit to consumption, but guarantee that every individual is able to live a good life. And this is important, is free to realize their individual life plans and choices within a safe operating space. The concept neither implies a plea for asceticism nor a general rejection of consumption, but pursues the aim of living well within limits. The process of defining minimum and maximum consumption standards in a joint societal discourse has to be as representative and inclusive as possible. The concept of sustainable consumption corridors is context sensitive and does not aim for a unified global implementation, but rather encourages a contextual adaption in different parts of the world. It also needs to be re-evaluated and readjusted over time. Similarly to Pech, Doris Fuchs and Antonietta Di Giulio suggest that on the one hand, hoping for immediate all-encompassing change does not seem advisable, while on the other hand, I quote, we simply cannot wait for international negotiations and agreements on this. However, local initiatives may well provide promising stepping stones.
Jan Sobrino, Jesuit and Salvadorian liberation theologian with Basque origins, has brought up the theme of a civilization of shared austerity in several of his writings. It is an adaption of Ignacio Eacuria's vision of a civilization of poverty. With this notion, Sobrino's fellow Jesuit did not envisage a universal impoverishment. He rather introduced it as a counter model to the prevailing civilization of wealth, which promotes the possessive accumulation of the maximum possible wealth as the fundamental basis for one's own security and the possibility of an ever-increasing consumerism as the basis for one's own happiness. Meanwhile, the civilization of poverty makes the universal satisfaction of basic needs, the principle of development and the growth of shared solidarity, the basis for humanization. In this context, Ea Kuria did not refer to poverty as a state of deprivation or the be. I'm sorry, let me start again. In this context, Ea Kuria did not refer to poverty as a state of deprivation of the bare necessities caused by unjust structures and exploitation, but as a voluntarily and actively accepted mode of life in which the goods of the earth are shared among all people in a way that enables everyone to live with dignity. In this sense, speaking of a civilization of shared austerity instead of poverty is more precise and reflects better what Eacuria was alluding to, although it lacks the same sharpness and dialectical opposition to the civilization of wealth, as Sobrino himself has suggested several times. Clear parallels can be seen between Nico Pech's vision of a post-growth society and a theologically envisioned civilization of shared austerity, especially when the latter is described as, I quote, a universal state of affairs which guarantees the satisfaction of basic needs, the freedom of pers personal choices, and an environment for personal and community creativity that permits the emergence of new forms of life and culture, new relationships with nature, with others, with oneself and with God. Even though Eacuria and Sobrino did not put environmental limits at the center of their concept, like Pech, human embeddedness in and care for nature and all creation is certainly an important part of it. Also, Pace's appreciation of the benefits of creative subsistence mirrors the founding of a civilization of shared austerity on work that not only produces, but also channels creativity and human fulfillment. The civilization of wealth, on the other hand, does not build spirit or values that can humanize people and societies. As a civilization of the individual, of a selfish good life and a type of success that excludes others and comes at their expense, it is rather characterized 
spiritually by fear. Its members in their dependency on ever new options of consumption are driven by a desire for unlimited well-being, which Sobrino characterizes as truly compulsive. The civilization of wealth is thus not only dehumanizing for those who pay the costs it generates, but also for those who enjoy it. However, a unique feature of Eyakurias and Sobrino's liberation theological reasoning is the idea that healing and liberation do not primarily stem from self-empowerment in niches within the civilization of wealth. Far from it, they insist that, I quote, the new civilization be informed by spirit, a spirit generated mainly by the poor. This counterintuitive postulate can be a critical corrective in debates around post-growth and sustainable consumption. Even though the industrialized countries and their citizens clearly are the main contributors to the present ecological crises, especially to climate change, and therefore bear the major responsibility for changing their economies and lifestyles, they may not be able to do it on their own. Rather, they may need to seek support and inspiration from those who have experience in living within limits because living as if environmental limits did not exist has never even been an option for them. I guess it is of little surprise that a Catholic theologian would also consult Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si of 2015 on the matter at hand. After having called for an ecological conversion that draws motivation from a Christian eco-spirituality, the Pope comes to talk about sobriety as a part of said spirituality. Early on in his encyclical, he had explained that, I quote, If we no longer speak the language of fraternity and beauty in our relationship with the world, our attitude will be that of masters, consumers, ruthless exploiters, unable to set limits on their immediate needs. By contrast, if we feel intimately united with all that exists, then sobriety and care will well up spontaneously. The Pope goes on to characterize sobriety as follows. Christian spirituality proposes an alternative understanding of the quality of life and encourages a prophetic and contemplative lifestyle, one capable of deep enjoyment free of the obsession with consumption. We need to take up an ancient lesson found in different religious traditions and also in the Bible. It is the conviction that less is more. Christian spirituality proposes a growth marked by moderation and the capacity to be happy with little. Pope Francis states that such sobriety when lived freely and consciously is liberating. It liberates from, I quote, unsatisfied needs, obsessiveness and wariness, and opens up spaces for finding satisfaction in fraternal encounters, in service, 
in developing one's gifts, in music and art, in contact with nature, in prayer. Therefore, living on little does not constitute a lesser life or one lived with less intensity. On the contrary, it is a way of living life to the full. Apart from the level of Christian spirituality, the Pope also comes to directly talk about respecting Earth's limits with regards to economic systems. He explicitly takes up growth-critical debates, adopting his own critical stance towards the, I quote, idea of infinite or unlimited growth and a talk of sustainable growth, which usually becomes a way of distracting attention and offering excuses. In any event, if in some cases sustainable development were to involve new forms of growth, then in other cases, given the insatiable and irresponsible growth produced over many decades, we need also to think of containing growth by setting some reasonable limits and even retracing our steps before it is too late. That is why the time has come to accept decreased growth in some parts of the world in order to provide resources for other places to experience healthy growth. Living well within limits and parting with economic growth imperatives corresponds to the gospel message, which, as Ignacio Eyacuria puts it, is characterized by strong reservations towards wealth and affluence, even though it does not promote asceticism. Post-growth economy and sustainable consumption corridors represent two promising approaches from different social science disciplines that bring a discussion about limits back to the agenda. Pairing them with Ignacio Eyacurias, Ion Sobrinos, and Pope Francis's idea has provided some first reinforcement that these approaches resonate well with Catholic thinking, actually better than a pro-growth economic agenda and affluent lifestyles. More dialogue and collaboration on this would be helpful. Therefore, I want to encourage theologians to actively engage in the debates around post-growth and lifestyles of sufficiency and become allies to those scholars who try to conceptualize and promote them. Societal change towards a life within limits and free from growth imperatives will continue to be difficult at a large scale. Pech, Fuchs and Di Giulio agree on this and recommend taking quasi-subversive exemplary action in niches. Christian theologians, churches and faithful in general would do well in becoming allies to social movements who try to flesh out such exemplary action. Some examples of such collabor collaborations exist already. The German church initiative Anders Wachsen, Growing Differently, tries to promote ideas of alternatives to economic growth paradigm within church and societal contexts. It is mainly supported by the Protestant churches in Germany, but also by several Catholic dioceses and organizations. 
The initiative has developed a concept for sustainable model parishes and congregations, so-called Anders Wachsen parishes, which has been trialing in congregations of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Saxony. More parishes and congregations are invited to adopt the concept. In 2018, an expert group of the German Catholic Bishops Conference has published an analysis of post-growth approaches and strategies from an angle of Christian social ethics. While the authors do not reject the idea of economic growth in principle, they praise the post-growth movement for bringing the serious flaws of current growth-based economic systems to attention, and they highlight that from the perspective of Catholic social teaching, economic growth may never be an end in itself and thus is not to be absolutized. This presentation has also shown that both social sciences and theologies are able to make a case that economic reductions and adhering to limitations do not necessarily reduce quality of life, but rather have the potential to generate liberating effects. This is even more reason and incentive for Christians and particularly Christian theologians to engage in, in and become supporters of the idea of living well with limits. Thank you for your attention.